prophet Amos is continuing to speak to the northern tribes of Israel. It's easy to say that Amos is a one-note prophet because he is. He is in many ways coming back to this same message of saying, you claim to be God's covenant people. You are worshiping God. You're you're doing, quote-unquote, all the right things. But then you're, you're repressing your brothers and sisters. You're ignoring the plot of the poor. You're using people to get things. Materialism and greed have become not just commonplace, but applauded in your culture, he says. So he comes with this message saying, repent, turn from that. And now we focus on on three verses where Amos begins to poke holes in a facade they have built up. He begins to show them a, a fallacy of thought. He's showing them that the rope they're holding to thinking it will save them is barely connected by a thread. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 5, hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why? Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall. And a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? And gloom with no brightness to it. Pray with me. Father, grant us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth. Incline our hearts to obey and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. It is very easy in our culture, because of the emphasis on wealth, to look to an easy fix and believe that 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 would solve all of our problems. Whenever the news begins reporting news that the Powerball lottery is up to hundreds of millions of dollars, of course, sales increase. And they increase because there's that wish If I could just hit it big, if I could just win it, all my problems would be over. Woo! But that thinking really falls under the category of be careful what you wish for. 70% of those who win the lottery are completely broke within seven years. Edward Eugle researched a book on what happens to lottery winners. It's entitled, ironically, Money for Nothing. He stated after he had interviewed thousands of lottery winners that he could really state that only a very, very few were happy. In fact, he said, you would be absolutely shocked by how many of them who struck it big later said, winning that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. Be careful what you wish for. Israel needed to heed that counsel. They were wishing for the day of the Lord. 
Lord, let it come. Bring your day back. You see, Amos, although uh, he's later in our Bible and later in the prophets, he is believed to be the first to use this phrase, the day of the Lord. But although he was the first to state it, the idea of the day of the Lord had taken root in the psyche of Israel. They longed for it. They looked forward to it. You see, the day of the Lord was a day of cosmic catastrophe. Joel 2 The prophet Joel, he describes it in words that we're used to, that the day of the Lord will be a day of wonders in the heavens and upon the earth. He uses this apocalyptic language to say in Joel chapter 2, the day of the Lord will be a day of blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun turned to darkness and the moon turned to blood. Why would they want that? They would want that. Because those things happen because the king of the universe descends to take his throne. The king comes to establish his reign once and for all and beyond question. You see, the day of the Lord is most often used and associated with the times where God saved his people. They understood the day of the Lord with all of its cosmic changes to be the day that God delivers His people. Just like God worked to deliver Israel from the hands of the Midianites through Gideon. Just like He freed and destroyed the Philistines through David. Then on that day, the day of the Lord, God will come down as the king and He will come with vengeance and He will destroy the enemies of His people. Now, Israel was prosperous at this time. It was a time of peace, but they still had enemies out there. They knew that even though it was a time of peace and prosperity, that the enemies were just waiting for that moment to rise up and destroy them. And so they were praying, Lord, let the day of the Lord come now. We've got a front row seat and we've got a big bucket of popcorn. We'll watch it all take place. We'll watch our enemies get what they deserve. We will see the vengeance of God and we will cheer because now they're getting exactly what they deserve. And then Amos shows up. You see, the first words are shocking. Woe to you. That's the word of a curse. He says, you're praying for God to destroy his enemies? Why in the world would you desire the day of the Lord? It's a day of doom. It's a day of disaster. Look at the language. It is darkness. It's not light. He paints a very stark picture. They're thinking the day of the Lord will be their rescue, their judgment, their deliverance from all their enemies. Amos says it's like you're walking down a path and you're confronted with a line. I've got to get away from that line. So you turn to run the other way and you don't run 100 yards till you run into a, a mama bear. Then as if you could get away from that mama bear, you think, i got to get away from that. And so you see your house, and you get to your house, you run in, you throw open the back door, you get in the kitchen, you put your hand against the wall just to rest and catch your breath, and then a rattlesnake bites you. It's not. You, you can't escape from this. Why are you, you fooling yourselves? You think you're ready for this day, but you're not. And that's the whole purpose. You think it'll be a day of escape, but it'll be like escaping your enemies to run into the bear that is God's wrath. You see, they had developed a false sense of security. Amos is shooting holes in the popular belief of their day. They think they're secure because they are descendants of Abraham. 
They're under the covering of the covenant. Therefore, they're okay. We are from the line of Abraham and Moses. We know David. We're safe. We're under the covenant. We are okay. And Amos is saying, you're not okay. You claim to be under the covenant, but you're not living like it. But Amos, but Amos, we are okay because we go to Bethel to worship. We go to Gilgal. We go to the first church of Beersheba. We're good. We're, we're doing all the right stuff. We go there. We give our sacrifices. We do everything you're supposed to do. We're okay. And Amos says, you're not okay. You read the language. Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings. I'll not accept them. You think you're okay, but you're not. But Amos, we're prosperous. All of our needs are taken care of. Economically, we're good. The gross national product is on an upswing. There are jobs everywhere. Surely, that is a sign of God's favor. God is pleased with us or else we wouldn't be prospering. So, you know what, Amos? We're okay for that day. And Amos says, you're not okay. You're doing all those things, but you're not addressing the real issue. You're trying to cover it over. I had some knew some folks at Carson Newman where I did my undergraduate work. Carson Newman's a Baptist college and, you know, good school, good school. Remember in the dorm, though, one of the guys on one of the floors had purchased cable, got cable in the dorm. And, man, that was fantastic to have cable as a college student. Talk about being in high cotton. Well, his friends lived in the dorm room directly above him, and they wanted a piece of the action here. So they figured out a way to share the cable they spliced the wire took a wire out of the window took it up but here was the problem people could drive by administrators could walk by and see this wire going what's that wire doing coming from that window so they knew they had to cover it up so they devised a very clever plan they made a wooden cross it's a Baptist school nobody's going to question a cross on the outside of a dormitory at a Baptist school. So they placed the cross over their shared cable wire so no one would ever know. That's the same thing Israel was doing. Lord, we're not treating people righteously. We're full of greed, but Lord, we're doing all the right stuff. We'll cover over it. And that's what Amos is poking holes in. You're claiming you're worshiping Yahweh, but then you turn around and you're ignoring the need. And that's why he says in verse 20, Is not the day of the Lord darkness and light? Be careful what you wish for, Israel, because the day of the Lord is not going to work out well for you. He says, in fact, Israel's no different from other nations. Look to chapter 6, if you will. He pronounces a second woe. Curses upon those who are at ease in Zion. You're at ease. You're not, not troubled by the, the poverty and the things, the injustice around you. You feel secure on the Mount of Samaria. The noble men of the first nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Now, he's going to list enemies of Israel. That's what he does in verse 2. Pass over to Kalna. That's an enemy of Israel. And see. From there go to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. In other words, take a look at your enemies. Take a look at the people that you're praying the day of the Lord will come and give judgment on. Take a good look at them. Now look at the next line of verse 2. 
are you better than any of these kingdoms? The rampant violence you see there, are you any different? The rampant materialism, are you any different? The rapid sexual immorality, are you any different? If God's going to judge them, do you think he's going to turn a blind eye to your needs? So be careful when you pray for the day of the Lord. Many ways we can empathize as the church today around the world with those soldiers that were trapped on the beaches of Dunkirk in World War II. They were surrounded by the German army. 300,000 of them huddled praying for rescue. In many ways, that's analogous to the way the church is today. The way Jesus said it would be. We are surrounded. We are, in, we are in enemy territory. And it is very easy for us to step back and say, Lord, deliver us. Come, bring the day of the Lord. So we too need to consider what we're asking for. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord is associated with Jesus. Jesus, in fact, inaugurated that day. Now, it's not come to completion yet. The day of the Lord will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. But he began it. Now, this is the reason I say that Jesus began the day of the Lord. It's a long process. When the day of Pentecost occurred in Acts chapter 2, The apostles are gathered in an upper room and they're praying. They're waiting for power. And it says this mighty rushing wind comes through. And the fire is like tongues of fire dance on their heads and they speak in other tongues. Now, people see this happening. They see the effects. And Peter stands up and preaches. You know what Peter uses as his text? Joel chapter 2. And he says, what you're seeing here is what Joel prophesied about the day of the Lord. The sun turned dark. The moon turned blood red. Now, we have no record that those things happened physically. But what he is saying is that with the coming of the Spirit, there has been a change brought about that reaches up to the heavens. That has changed everything because with the coming of Jesus, now is the day of decision. So we can say the day of the Lord was inaugurated with Christ's coming. It's like a a trailer of it. Because the cross is the dividing line of judgment. But the day will come when Christ Jesus returns to establish the new heaven and the new earth and bring to completion the day of the Lord. You see, this day, the day of the Lord, is no less terrifying in the New Testament. Look at the screens you'll see Hebrews 12 25 through 20 I'm sorry it's so small I'll try to make it larger next time he says see that you don't refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven it's an argument from lesser to greater if we hear a voice on earth and we neglect that call to repent what do we have to hold to if God speaks directly from heaven At the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for... Why do we offer God worship that is full of reverence and awe? He is a consuming fire. 
This is no domesticated deity. This is no safe God. Even in the New Testament where we tend to neglect this truth and we say that God is just love. His love is a consuming fire that judges the wrong for His glory. The author of Hebrews came back to this theme. In fact, Hebrews 12 is simply a repetition of Hebrews 10. You'll see Hebrews 10 verses 30 through 31 up on the screen. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, God will judge the world around us. But he begins with his people. The day of the Lord is a day that is terrifying because he says it is a scary thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. Now, since that day is certain, we need to ask ourselves, what are we relying upon to be ready for that day? You see, we make several assumptions about the day of the Lord. Sometimes we, we tend to just to make it purely theoretical. But because Jesus came, walked the earth, died, rose again, we can say it's not just theoretical. This is a day that will come about. You see flashes of it with Jesus. That whole clearing the temple thing, I don't think Jesus came in and said, Guys, by the way, if you got a second, do you think you could get this stuff? Because my father's house, you know, guys... Golly gee, I hate to say it, but it's supposed to be a house of prayer. No. It says Jesus came in with a whip. And he starts turning over tables. And it's chaos. This is not Jesus whispering sweet lullabies in their ears. This is Jesus saying, get out of my father's house. This is a, you've made it into a den of thieves. taste of our God some people assume well I'm not really an enemy of God after all God is love isn't he so so we justify things by saying you know what we're all deep down we are all friends with God I mean the day of the Lord may be stressful for a minute but after all God is gracious and 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 they rationalize by saying you know that day is like getting in trouble with your mom and dad you know it hurts for a little bit but in the end they're still your mom and dad and it'll be okay Words like justice and vengeance. That's simply just exaggeration to get our attention now. But it's interesting if we go that route and we say, we're not really enemies of God. Then why do we draw lines? For this is, this is what I'm getting at. Even those who would say, in the end we'll all be saved because we're not really enemies of God. They still hold that there's judgment for Hitler, Stalin, Charles Manson. So the question becomes, why do we draw the lines where we do? Why do we distinguish? Well, that's a really big sin. Me, I'm okay. What determines what a really big sin is? Doesn't God determine that? Because when we get down to it, our natural inclination is to rebel against God. And whether it's something that we would consider huge like murder, or whether it's gossip, both of them, both of them are actions where we defy God to tell us what to do. Lord, I'll say what I want to say. You know I speak my mind. I'm just speaking the truth. Everybody knows what type of person she is. 
That's rebellion against God. James put it like this. Up on the screen, you'll see James 4, 4. He said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you're trying to be friends with the world and fit in without thinking about what holiness looks like, he says, you're, you're living as an enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Paul hit on this in Romans chapter 5. Up on the screen, you'll see verse 10, Romans 5, 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You don't reconcile friends. Our natural default position is rebellion. That's why we need to be reconciled. And that's why he goes on to say, we are reconciled by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, we are saved by his life. You see, but we still hold on to this argument. I'm good. I'm a good person. Then the question becomes, what's your standard of goodness? If you allow me for just a second... To, to risk using a basketball illustration because I know sports illustrations grow tedious, but permit it. Suppose I was feeling kind of down about myself and said, I'm going to go play some ball. I need to play some basketball. Get out, get some exercise. I know what I'll do. Upward begins with the kindergartners in first grade and the second and third grade. I'm going to go to Trinity this coming Saturday morning and I'm going to play ball with the kindergartners and the third graders. I think I've got a little height advantage on them. I should do pretty well. I'd go out there and I'd look pretty good, don't you think? Please say yes. Yeah. I'm NBA all-star. Tell those third graders, take it to the house. Now, what do you think would happen, though, if through some mix-up, I ended up playing one-on-one -on -one with Stephen Curry, the Golden State Warriors, I wouldn't look so good anymore. In fact, truth is, I'd probably feign a broken ankle. It's all comparison. You put me with one group, I'm an all-star. You put me with another group, I'm not. That's how we judge goodness, isn't it? We will always compare ourselves to somebody that we know we're better than. Well, I may have my problems, but I'm no axe murderer. I may have my problems, but I don't cheat on my taxes. You never hear anybody considering themselves, you know, I'm good, but yeah. I don't compare myself to a Billy Graham who's just a sinner like we are. But then we realize something. We have to realize this. On the day we stand before Lord, if we're relying on goodness, the standard by which we will be gauged is not other people. God himself so how will you fare is your goodness equal to the goodness of God if so you've got to explain Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of his glory can't rely on goodness can't even rely on religious things See, you could do all the right things and still not be made right. That's what Israel was doing. And God says, I hate your feast. You're not ready for the day of the Lord. You see, we can give the appearance of things, but that still doesn't make us in for that day of judgment. A few years ago, Shaquille O'Neal, who is an NBA star, former star, still very well known. He, it's hard to miss him. He's seven foot one, 325 pounds, very winning smile, funny personality. He was joking about the fact that he was going to be in Washington, D.C. for a radio program. And he said, I wonder what would happen if I showed up at the White House. Two days later, he put that into practice. 
pulls up in front of the gate, gets out, he's in his suit, he walks up to the gate and says, I'm Shaquille O'Neal, I'd like to go in and see the president. Guess what happened? He didn't get in. But I'm Shaquille O'Neal, everybody knows me. It doesn't matter. You don't have the right credentials, you're not getting in. So what's the credentials we need? How can we be right and ready for this day of judgment? It's not goodness. It's not religious activity. It's not based upon pedigree of of what great-grandmother was like and what is passed down. It comes down to one thing, and Joel answers this question for us. We look at another prophet. Up on the screen, you'll see Joel chapter 2. Joel said this, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verses 30 and 31 describe the day of the Lord. But he comes back and he says, Call on the name of the Lord. Now that's more than just saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. To call upon the name of the Lord means there are certain convictions that you believe. One, you believe that He can save you. You see, this idea of calling upon the name of the Lord is not just a mental assent to facts. It's more than that. Satan himself and the demons, they know facts about God. This is more than just affirming certain things. It's more than saying, well, when I was at youth camp, I raised my hand so I know I'm saved. And it's more than saying, I checked yes, that I wanted to be saved. It goes far more than that. This deals with absolute trust and reliance. To call upon the name of the Lord is saying, Lord, if you don't save me, I'll not be saved. I have no other means, no other way, no goodness, no past references that I can give you that would merit my earning salvation on the day of the Lord. Because if we trust Him, we will take serious what He says about our rebellion. And we will repent. Jesus said a lot of shocking things. I referred to one of his shocking acts when he removed the people from the temple. But I want you to look at something he said up on the screen in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the phrase, Lord, Lord, is a term of endearment. It's like saying, Lord, I love you. But he says, just saying that, that's not going to get you in. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what is his will? Well, he clarifies that. By giving a negative. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name? All those are things that we would say, man, that's got to be a person doing the will of the Lord. Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know what the one thing that is missing from all those works that Jesus began his ministry preaching? It is the phrase, repent. Turn from your sin. Don't think it's just hidden by the cross. Remember, the cross is to wipe it away. That our faith, our calling up of the Lord, on the Lord, name of the Lord to be saved, is shown by turning from sin and knowing that he can save us from that. All those works without a heart turning to God do not bring salvation. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. And receiving grace through faith is demonstrated by turning and fighting against sin. It's a life characterized by dependence upon God. Well, can I be sure? Can I know for certain? Yes. 
1 John 5, 13, look up on the screens. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can be ready. So what do we need to ask ourselves to know that we're ready? One, is my life characterized by repentance? Do I engage in a fight against sin? I'm not preaching a perfectionism. But in your life, is there an awareness that the Lord Jesus reigns supreme, so I need to turn to Him and seek Him, to know that we engage in going to church and in prayer and reading the Scripture that we may know Him and live for Him and love Him. A second thing to ask, and this is based on the book of Amos, am I concerned about living my faith? In chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, after God says, stop your worship. Stop it. It's not acceptable to me. Look at what he says in verse 24, one of the most famous passages in the book of Amos. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You show your under covenant with me by how you treat your fellow humanity. Love me, love your neighbor. So that becomes the checkpoints. Does my love for God, is it reflected in a life striving to please Him? And is my relationship with God reflected in how I live with my neighbors and my brothers and sisters in Christ? Our hope on the day of the Lord is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's our hope. It will be a dreadful day. But on that day, those who are found in Christ will find reason to rejoice. Are you ready for that day? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.